fourth session of the table ronde on the subject of the writer as public figure. The procedure will be that we have a morning session and an afternoon session. We will not intermit our morning session for a coffee break, but no doubt individuals will want to go and have coffee when they feel like it. But the thing will be continuous till around noon or a bit later. And the procedure will be first that the members of the panel will, or most of the members of the panel, will express views of their own and discuss the views of other members. And then I shall call on members of the Congress from the floor of the hall to contribute. And members of the Congress from the floor of the hall who've already given their names to the secretary for contributing include Mr. Franz Theodor Czokor of Austria, Mrs. Hilda Domin of Germany, Madame Kamenova of the Bulgarian Center, Mr. Veresh of Hungary, Mr. Kowan of Korea, Mr. Kutso Heras of Greece, Mr. Njem of Vietnam, Mr. Valery Tarsis of the Center for Writers in Exile, Mrs. Nancy Yin from China, Taipei, Ms. Hilda Spiel from the Austrian Center, Mr. Amon Dabi from the Ivory Coast, Mr. Stanku from Romania, Mr. Alexis Ranit of the Writers in Exile, Mrs. Dravitz from Germany, and Mr. Kruger from Germany, Mr. Rusinek from Poland, and towards the end, Dr. Fichter from Switzerland wishes to make a communication. Now, um, I would stress that the members from the floor are limited to interventions of from three to five minutes. And in principle, these interventions are made from the microphone on the floor, and they should be um, not read communications, but we appreciate that some of our colleagues have difficulty with the official languages, and so they may be able to read. Uh, in the case of one member who wishes to speak from the audience, because of his age, I'm asking him to come on the platform as it's more convenient him, for him to speak from a sitting position. On the procedure, that's all I have to say. Now, on the question of the theme, we had already in advance of the Congress the formulation of the theme in more than one way. You'll remember in the small brochure which we received, we got the formulation in this way. In our time, examples of public commitment abound, both to simple humanitarianism and to rigorous ideology, out of sentiment and out of intellectual conviction. At the fourth table, the question is put whether the donning by the writer of a public persona tempts him to live up to that role in disregard of his own creative impulse. A collateral question is, do we read the classics because their authors took a stand in a contemporary conflict, or rather because they illuminate the spirit of man? Well, we considered 
whether we might divide our sessions morning and afternoon between these two formulations. But we decided on the whole that this was not practicable, that there are many aspects to this problem of the writer as public figure, and it's best that each individual should express himself, and they'll all come back to the central theme. Then there was, of course, another formulation here, and we had very interesting formulations in the Saturday Review article by <coughs> Professor Bell and in the Book Week um, article by Mr. Connor Cruz O'Brien. So no doubt members of the Congress have come prepared with thoughts on all these formulations here. Now, I suppose that all of us as writers are in some sense in our own spheres, in our own countries, public figures. I know that in my little country of Scotland, um, when I appear in the street, people turn and say to one another, that's Douglas Young. Well, this is largely due to television. The modern mass media make the general physiognomy of a writer known to the public and the name and the accent and so forth. Um, this is something that makes us all public figures on a certain sphere. Very few of us will be public figures well known in many countries, like our international president or some of the distinguished members of the panel. But I suppose we've all had the experience of meeting our readers who have heard about us and know a certain amount about us from television or the other mass media, and they may be a little surprised that we are, on, in most respects, quite ordinary guys. Uh, we are not extraordinary all the time. And I think that this formulation about a writer uh, donning a public persona, the donning by the writer of a public persona, is perhaps a little misleading. The writer doesn't don a public persona. What happens is that various individual members of the public get a certain idea of a writer and think that is all there is to the writer. And so they're surprised when they meet the writer and find he's not entirely like that. Now, on the question of readers, uh, one is normally, of course, writing for oneself and any possible person who might be interested. And the ordinary reader is normally an individual in reading. If it's a case of a play, the case is different because a play is written largely for an audience and you're thinking of a whole lot of individuals in their collectivity. And an individual in listening to a play in a theater, the case is different on radio or television, an individual is influenced in reaction by the simultaneous reactions of other members of the audience. But for most cases, one can say that the writer is communicating as an individual to other individuals. And so you have an enormous series varying with the distribution of the work of literature. You have an enormous series of individual tete-a-tete. And to me, it doesn't really matter whether you're talking to one person or to a thousand at a time, you're still talking to one person, the conceivably interested person in what one is saying. And I suppose the only thing to do is to talk as spontaneously and naturally as one can. Well now, 
As the audience is gradually gathered on hearing my observations being disseminated through these instruments, and I hope you are hearing them well. Are you all hearing them well? Yeah. Not. Not. Some of you are not. Well, in that case, perhaps it'd be better if I sit down. Can you hear better if I sit down? Well, um, the, say, the, the higher the church tower, the louder the bell, but in this case, it doesn't work. Uh, all right, now. The, I was simply making some remarks, mostly procedural, while the audience assembled. And now that the audience has assembled, I bid you all welcome, and I'll proceed with the business of the first session, and we'll commence by hearing a number of points of view from members of our panel. You can see all their names and the centres to which they belong written up here. Et en premier lieu, je veux donner la parole à Monsieur Gulia Ilyesh, poète hongrois. Monsieur Ilyesh. Mesdames et messieurs, chaque écrivain pourrait établir une longue liste des demandes surprenantes que ses lecteurs lui ont adressé sous prétexte d'avoir lu un de ses ouvrages. Une ontologie constituée par les réponses ne différera à première vue que très peu de la documentation d'une clinique psychiatrique. En réalité, ces correspondances sont les archives les plus révélatrices des rapports, par ailleurs assez mystérieux, des écrivains avec leurs lecteurs, c'est-à-dire du rôle de l'écrivain dans la société. Entre les deux guerres, par exemple, j'ai publié un journal, à mon avis, objectif, sur mon voyage en Union soviétique. Bien que je n'avais pas mentionné le nom de Michurin, un jardinier, un pépiniériste m'a prié de lui procurer, étant donné qu'à l'époque, il n'y avait pas de rapport diplomatique entre mon pays, la Hongrie, et l'Union soviétique, en secret et en cadeau, 500 plans des péchés sibériens résistant au gel. Nous connaissons tous la jeune lectrice qui, après la parution de notre roman, nous demande encore une lettre personnelle détaillée pour justifier la conduite d'un de nos héros qu'elle réprouve. Nous connaissons aussi la lectrice d'un certain âge qui nous propose, après la publication d'un volume de poésie, un échange de lettres hebdomadaires, car elle a découvert que sur cette terre, seuls nous deux pouvions nous comprendre. Ces phénomènes éclairent le fond du problème. Celui qui reçoit une lettre peut se croire supérieur à son expéditeur. C'est à lui qu'on demande ou apprend quelque chose. On s'adresse à lui. Ce n'est pas lui qui sollicite. Il accordera seulement la réponse ou le service demandé. Le temps de la lecture de notre correspondance, nous sommes tous assis sur un trône. La lettre a devancé la littérature. C'est pour cette raison, je crois, que beaucoup de lecteurs de livres ne sont encore se sentent encore dans la position du lecteur de lettres. Les écrivains ne font-ils pas aussi mille grâces pour que le cher lecteur honoré leur accorde sa patience 
Un de mes éminents confrères hongrois a décrit, selon une expérience, expérience personnelle, la conduite de l'acteur aristocrate. Monsieur le comte, superbement assis devant la cheminée dans un de ses, de, dans un de ses salles de son château, lisant après déjeuner, attendant le dîner, arrivé en bas de la page du roman de Balzac, la déchirait et la jetait au feu. Mon collègue le condamnait. Il n'a pas aperçu le mobile ancestral du phénomène. Il n'est pas convenable de garder des lettres. La lettre est strictement personnelle. Elle est à usage unique pour une seule circonstance. Garder une lettre, c'est-à-dire la traiter en chose indépendante de son expéditeur, est autant de mauvais goût qu'enregistrer en cachette, par exemple, avec un micro placé sous le lit, la déclaration d'amour de notre partenaire. Le comte lisait son roman installé sur le trône du lecteur de lettres. Nous désapprouvons son orgueil enfantin qui lui a permis de considérer un roman précieusement relié comme une communication personnelle, ne devant plus resservir, mais nous apprécions son refus d'être un voyeur. Cette attitude est devenue une des caractéristiques de la littérature des siècles dernières. Elle a mené à un extrême raffinement, mais aussi au découragement, car les lecteurs voyeurs et les écrivains acteurs participent de plus en plus consciemment à ce jeu, pour ainsi dire, malsain. Dante n'a pas à écrire pour être entretenu. Il écrivait des lettres pour faire des leçons, pour enseigner, pour ainsi dire, au sens du mot « renseigner ». On ne peut faire la leçon en toute impartialité et durablement que si on est indépendant. Il ne faut surtout pas dépendre de celui à qui on veut faire la leçon. Voici la racine de notre question. Nous répondons, l'écrivain de notre époque, exige-t-il le droit de faire la leçon, de dire ce qu'il croit être vrai Nous répondons tous naturellement, oui, puisque sans cela, il n'y aurait pas de littérature. Sans cela, il ne voudrait pas la peine d'écrire, ni de lire, ajoute les lecteurs. Mais est-ce qu'à notre époque, cette exigence est davantage respectée qu'autant de Dante L'écrivain d'aujourd'hui, Peut-il être indépendant de ceux qu'il dépend Peut-il exprimer librement son opinion enfin envers son élève La contradiction, me semble flagrante, n'est que superficielle, car les écrivains et les lecteurs ne forment deux camps différents qu'aux yeux des éditeurs et des distributeurs, qui ne m'intéressent pas, qu'aux yeux de ceux qui s'occupent des affaires d'argent. En vérité, les écrivains sont en même temps des lecteurs et la littérature ne peut prospérer que s'ils entendent les deux. Toute littérature est produite de son époque, on le répète assez. Il semble à beaucoup de no que notre temps est celui il semble à beaucoup que notre temps est celui du commerce. Il serait trop long d'expliquer pourquoi je suis enclin à croire que nous vivons une époque semblable à celle de Dante. Nous sommes au tournant plein de troubles et d'espérances. Et les yeux lucides, les voix pures, les écrivains se font assez rares.
Nous avons des éditeurs exigeants, dit-on, mais nous avons aussi les muses plus exigeantes encore, car muse veut dire, comme vous l'avez toujours dire, vérité, beauté plus qu'humaine. Nous n'écrivons pas pour ceux qui s'ennuient dans leur grand fauteuil et écoutent de temps en temps d'une oreille distraite la lecture de leur correspondance faite par un valet ou une secrétaire, même si la lettre était tracée par leur mère mourante ou leur amour au désespoir. Nous écrivons pour ceux qui souffrent avec nous et qui veulent pour médicaments, vérité et beauté, pour tout prix, à tout prix, selon moi. Merci. Je remercie M. Iliès de son bel exposé, de son point de vue. Et maintenant, je passe la parole à M. Ignazio Siloni d'Italie. Mesdames et Messieurs, il y a quelques années, un jeune essayiste italien a publié un livre sur l'éclipse des intellectuels. Ce livre a été traduit aussi dans d'autres langues. Et dans l'acception la, dans de ce titre, le mot « éclipse », qui en astronomie est un phénomène très bœuf, d'une longueur de quelques minutes, est pris au contraire dans un sens beaucoup plus large, comme un obscurcissement durable, pour ainsi dire presque permanent, des intellectuels dans la société moderne. Cette, cette, théorie, cette théorie paradoxale a rejoint d'autre part une, une sociologie déjà vieille qui affirmait que dans la société industrielle, la question fondamentale étant la question sociale, la question des rapports entre les capitalistes et les ouvriers, et parfois entre l'État, le capitalisme et les ouvriers, les intellectuels, en tant que tels, ne peuvent jouer qu'un rôle secondaire au service de l'une ou de l'autre de ces forces en présence au service de l'État, au service des grandes trestes ou au service de l'organisation révolutionnaire. C'est depuis, on peut dire, 1848 que les intellectuels avaient été destitués de leur tronc précédent et réduits à un simple ornement de la société ou bien à des instruments pour des fin d'autrui. Euh, Bismarck, comme vous certainement vous rappelez, a dit une fois qu'avec un peu d'argent, on peut facilement avoir des poètes ou des prostituées. Le chancelier de fer peut-être exagéré, généralisé, mais il faut admettre que parfois la psychologie des intellectuels paraissait lui donner raison parce que cette psychologie qui est un produit même du genre de vie que beaucoup de nous menons, mène facilement au narcissisme et à une servitude au moins extérieure. Ensuite, nous avons eu le phénomène très moderne et, 
et encore actuel du totalitarisme. Et si on prend ce mot, pas dans le sens injurié ou polémique, auquel d'habitude il sert, mais dans son sens historique et scientifique, c'est-à-dire une conception de la société où la primauté du politique domine tout le reste et tout le reste est subordonné aux fins politiques de l'État totalitaire, eh bien, c'était tout à fait naturel que cette théorie précédente euh, trouvait dans la, dans, le, dans la conception euh, totalitaire euh, sa perfection euh, définitive. Les intellectuels, les écrivains, les poètes dans l'état totalitaire, ils sont très bien traités au point de vue matériel, mais ils ne sont que des instruments de la propagande. Ils ont formé avec eux des, des, des brigades de choc pour aller, pour aller assister à la récolte dans des colcoses ou au défrichissement des pierres vierges ou à, à l'inauguration des nouveaux plans quinquennales. Et à l'étranger, à l'étranger, le rôle n'était pas si fatigant, n'était pas si sévère, mais c'était aussi, aussi des tâches de propagande très légère d'ailleurs, parce que souvent, ça consistait dans la signature de manifestes que, qui donnaient l'impression d'être des mouches de coche de la nouvelle histoire, d'être avec l'avant-garde révolutionnaire, mais consigné sans trop se donner de peine, souvent de savoir de quoi il s'agissait. Cela avait fini par créer une certaine Inflation et vous savez que la, la fausse monnaie chasse la bonne et que parfois il y avait des protestations bien légitimes et bien justifiées, mais qui à l'opinion publique étaient dévalorisées du fait de l'abus de cette, de cette pratique euh, hebdomadaire et parfois quotidienne de, de protestation euh, d'intellectuels avec beaucoup de signatures, toujours un nombre croissant de signatures. Mais enfin, l'idée de l'art, l'idée de la littérature euh, qui s'exprimait dans, dans ces conceptions était euh, plutôt mesquine. On réduisait l'art et la littérature à être des miroirs de la réalité ou des porte-paroles de mots d'ordre élaborés ailleurs au comité central, au bureau politique du parti ou au ministère de la propagande. Tout de même, à une certaine époque, il y a eu des épisodes qui contrastaient, qui ne correspondaient pas exactement à cette sociologie, et du fait même que, tout en étant, c'est vrai, dans l'âge industriel, dans une société où la question sociale et la question la plus importante, il y avait d'autres problèmes qu'on croyait dépassés, mais qui, hélas, sont toujours actuels, des problèmes de liberté, des problèmes de liberté individuelle, d'indépendance nationale, etc. Ce qui fait que sur ces problèmes vieux ou renés ou nouveaux, les grands organismes qui représentent les classes restaient muets et que c'était des intellectuels qui exprimaient 
l'intérêt général. En effet, dans les dernières décennies, il y a eu des épisodes éclatants dans lesquels la scène politique a été dominée par l'initiative de groupes intellectuels et même par des individuels isolés. Ma tâche sera brièvement d'indiquer dans quelles conditions ce rôle renouveau des intellectuels a pu se vérifier. Tout d'abord, je pense, il me paraît, que c'est partout où le peuple, vivant dans des conditions très arriérées et ne disposant pas que des formes rudimentaires d'organisation tribale, a eu besoin que des intellectuels expriment leur volonté d'émancipation. C'est le cas des colonies et des anciennes colonies. Le rôle des petits groupes d'intellectuels issus des écoles métropolitaines, mais restés fidèles à leur peuple d'origine, a été indéniable dans la lutte de libération contre la métropole. Surtout dans la lutte idéologique, dans la lutte pour l'affranchissement de ces peuples encore techniquement arriérés, de la de l'hégémonie des idées et des manières de penser de la métropole. Certainement, la négritude a été une invention intellectuelle. Ensuite, nous avons constaté la réapparition des intellectuels dans le rôle de leader et de porte-drapeau, pour ainsi dire, dans la lutte contre l'État totalitaire, donner ce que j'ai rappelé tout à l'heure, la souveraineté absolue de la raison d'État dans le totalitarisme qui rend toute organisation sociale bureaucratique et qui abolit toute spontanéité créatrice. Les anneaux les plus faibles de la chaîne totalitaire se sont révélés dans tous les pays la paysannerie, les communautés religieuses, les groupes ou même des personnalités de la culture. Ce que a été le petit groupe d'étudiants La Rose Blanche en Allemagne naziste, vous tous le savez. Ce que a été le petit groupe non molare de Florence ou même la personnalité de Croce en Italie à l'époque du fascisme, nous le savons très bien. Ce qu'a été le rôle du club Petefi dans l'octobre hongrois, nous ne l'oublierons jamais. Et ce qu'ont été les intellectuels polonais et le petit groupe de Poprostu dans le réveil polonais et encore dans la mémoire de nous tous. Aussi de ce côté, ce qu'actuellement représente l'université en Espagne dans ses professeurs et dans ses étudiants, ce sont, en défaut d'autres forces plus massives, les faits qui nourrissent nos espoirs. Il y a eu des livres qui ont eu 
l'importance d'une bataille gagnée sur le front de la révolte antitotalitaire, telle que le docteur Zivago de Boris Pasternak. Et il y a eu d'autres exemples plus récents, déjà évoqués au cours des travaux de ce congrès. Ce que cela coûte dans un régime totalitaire érigé sur une base économique socialiste, ce que cela coûte de se soustraire au bourrage de cran de la propagande officielle et de suivre l'appel de sa propre conscience, ce que cela coûte d'angoisse et de doute, la tentation de l'hérésie intellectuelle en régime totalitaire, surtout en régime totalitaire socialiste, dans un régime auquel on a été lié par toutes les fibres de l'âme et du corps, peut le savoir seulement celui qui l'a éprouvé. Mais le pire n'est pas la menace des persécutions policières ou de la prison, ni même la faim, bien que la faim soit une expérience très désagréable, ni les calomnies des confrères qui noient dans l'ivrognerie leur mauvaise foi. Le pire, c'est encore que les plus infâmes accusations de trahison sont accueillies très souvent et crues, acceptées par les esprits les plus simples et même par les amis qui rompent tout rapport avec l'hérétique. Mais aussi de ce côté du monde, aussi dans, les, dans ces pays apparemment différents et opposés, régis par la, des formes démocratiques traditionnelles, peuvent se produire des conditions qui provoquent et qui exigent des interventions politiques d'intellectuels, même de certains qui d'habitude s'y tiennent à l'écart des agitations publiques. Cela arrive lorsque des problèmes graves se posent à la conscience nationale qu'ils ne trouvent pas dans les structures politiques existantes un examen sérieux et l'adoption des mesures nécessaires pourtant urgentes. Les vieux groupements et partis et appareils de politiciens professionnels apparaissent atteints de sclérose et restent sourdes aux invocations du pays. Ils font l'impression d'attendre inerte et passive que les esprits s'apaisent et que la routine reprenne son avantage. Cela a conduit à sa perte la quatrième république française. Et nous ne pouvons pas oublier qu'en défaut des partis et des grands organismes de la démocratie française, ont été surtout des intellectuels qui, pendant la guerre d'Algérie, ont sauvé l'honneur de leur pays. Et malaise de la même origine, même dans, des, dans un contexte social et politique différent, nous observons à présent se répandre parmi les étudiants et les milieux littéraires de ce pays, en connexion avec le conflit 
du Vietnam. Évidemment, on peut objecter que ce n'est pas là le rôle propre des intellectuels et des écrivains et que la réalité devant laquelle ils prennent position est plus compliquée de ce qu'ils s'imaginent et qu'on ne peut pas, avec, en invoquant des valeurs morales ou intellectuelles, résoudre les, les affaires du monde et les contradictions de notre époque. Il est possible, mais la liberté qui donne la possibilité à ces voix de protester et de formuler les exigences de la moralité publique contient en elle-même les conditions du débat et de la réfutation d'affirmations éventuellement fausses. En ce, qui concerne, en ce qui concerne la guerre et la paix, c'est avec ça que je termine, je n'oublierai jamais ce mot de Clémenceau qui affirmait que la guerre est une affaire trop sérieuse pour laisser que s'en occupe seulement les généraux. I thank Mr. Siloni very warmly on your behalf for this admirable discourse which is cleared up so many points that have faced writers in many countries and still do. And now for um, a little change perhaps of emphasis, may I call on Mr. Dendolard from the Netherlands. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. I only wonder why you say a little change. Perhaps be because in a kind of informal gathering we had about half an hour ago, I told you that I intended to be controversial, and I do that on purpose. I think that the speeches at this Congress threaten to evaporate away into the abstract too much. Here is a very precise question. The question is put whether the donning by the writer of a public persona tempts him to live up to that role in disregard of his true creative impulse. Now, you have already stated in your introduction that you thought this question was somewhat loosely formulated. And it is. But I have an objection to, especially to one word, and that's the word role with its connotation of play-acting. Frequently, the commitment and the literary work are two facets of one and the same personality. May I give an example? Because theory won't do. And an example which at the same time answers the collateral question. I do not like the best novels 
of Emile Zola. Any better, because he wrote J'accuse, and because he braved the Paris mob also bodily, because he was in great danger sometimes, in defense of the Jew Dreyfus. But Zola, if you afterwards, after having read his novels, you also read his biography, and are familiar with the facts of his life, he couldn't do otherwise. That was his personality. He was always searching for truth and striving after justice. One part of his work is called Le Quatre Vérité. And he was defending those truths when he was defending Dreyfus. Just as in another work by a sometimes committed writer, uh, who presently is, one of his works is, has been filmed, one of his lesser works, and is running around here in one of the cinema houses. But what I mean is The Roots of Heaven, La Racine du Ciel, by a well-known French writer. I don't remember his name. Comment il s'appelle encore? Oui, merci. There this man is the main person is defending the elephants in it because he says, I am defending mankind. But to come back to Zola, and in a way, J'accuse, with his lucid style, was also a work of art. And you can see in every phrase that it is a work of the trained investigator of social and political conditions. He didn't proceed otherwise when he wrote J'accuse than when he wrote Germinal. Now, we go on because there is another question which isn't put but is, which is implicit in the wording. How, after all, does that come about that you get to be a committed writer? Well, I don't mean this ironically. But if I read the charter of the pen club, all of us should be committed. Because I've tried to translate it from the Dutch version I've got here. And in point three, it is stated that we should do our utmost, we as members, to help banish the hatred between races, classes, and peoples, and to defend the ideal of peaceful coexistence. How then, although PEN itself professes to be a non-political organization, could we, if we pay more than merely lip service to the Charter, not commit ourselves? And now if you will permit me to turn in this into the personal field, but first of all this, the choice rests individual. Not everybody is a born fighter. And the choice to commit yourself or not does not defend only, as it is stated in the introduction, I think, on sentiment or intellectual conviction, but there is still something as that mysterious entity which nobody, even the phenomenologists, haven't quite succeeded in defining, which is called conscience. And then you've got background, tradition, 
upbringing. You got an example of this when one of the greatest American writers, William Faulkner, when the question of desegregation was brought up. In a long article in Life, he took a very cautious stand. It seemed overcautious to us Europeans who are not supposed and who are not familiar with all the conditions in the Deep South where he lived. But he couldn't do otherwise. That was his tradition. That was his upbringing. For other writers, it is different. I've always been a committed writer. Before the war, I was kicked out of four countries successively, out of Bulgaria, then Italy, then Austria, and finally Germany. Why? Because I was an anti-fascist. And not only professed it to be, but wrote about it. Not always in a strictly literary way, but it was implicit in my work. Then, during the war, I was lucky enough to escape to escape from occupied Holland, and I landed in England. And finally, I after having been a speaker, I became the leader of the Dutch government radio and committed myself heavily. And now we get to this important point. Is that bad for your creative impulse or for your work? Under circumstances, yes. In four and a half years in London, I know nothing but poetry. Then after the war, because I had become a kind of public figure in my own country by talking to them every day, they wanted me to go on. And I was in military service. And I got an order to report to the new radio. Well, at that time, you had something. There was some mysterious way of wriggling out of things, you paid your way out because there was not real money. The real money was cigarettes and alcohol. And so, by having two forms mixed up, I succeeded in wriggling out of it and I went to the island of Walcheren, which was inundated, and I worked there with the workers. I was officially a kind of liaison officer, but I was going back to my old work. But then after the war, then came Hiroshima. And after Hiroshima, I've committed myself continuously up to this day, and I intend to go on as fighting against nuclear armaments in every form, in every country. You don't find this literally, literally in my work, but it's all behind it. It's like a sponge. A novel is also, apart from what you put in it, as a writer, you put certain persons in. And in a play, you put certain persons in. But after all, there is this naked image, there is a kind of spotlight on a man sitting behind a typewriter with a blank page before him. That blank page is a sponge, and it is sucking in somewhat of his inward feeling, whether he wishes or not. And that's how it should be, I think. 
If I have taken this stand against nuclear armament, why? We are living willy-nilly in the thermonuclear age. As an American poet, Jean Durwood, expressed it, under the gloomy silhouette of wings we forged with reason reasonless. And then she says, but if our science doesn't quickly fail us, what hope there is under a burnt out sky? That's the situation in which we find ourselves. One of the members of the executive board of this American center, Norman Cousins, wrote in one of his articles, and I must look up the quotation, earlier generations have had the power merely to affect history. Ours has the power to expunge it, to annihilate it. Now then, every man is living by a certain kind of principle. Mine has been expressed by Albert Schweitzer in his works, the leading motive of which are reverence for life. And if I'm taking a stand publicly in certain problems, I do this not as is stated here in disregard of, but driven by the true creative impulse. Because after all, what is my creative impulse otherwise? At least I see it so. Then an infinitesimal part of the enormous life force on earth. And that we have got to defend. Because now we are an age, whether for a writer, it's a question of to be or not to be. At the first panel, the first round table in this auditorium, there has been said a lot about electronic gadgetry. And I would repeat much shorter than what I said yesterday. I had the impression that there were a lot of writers scurrying away like frightened rabbits before those new implements. Why should we? We could live by the word of St. Paul, investigate all things and keep the good. But then we should never forget that the same gadgetry, that and that and all this, is in the same class with the electronic <laughs> gadgetry which is going into the intercontinental missiles with the warheads. We live in an age in which an onslaught is being made upon us. And we threaten to be annihilated, not only as writers, but as a part of mankind. And that's why I am a committed writer. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. I thank you, Mr. Dandula, for this very eloquent manifesto of your faith. May I now call on Ms. Rosamond Lehman of the English Center. I don't think I should be heard. 
Lady, uh, Mr. Chairman, ladies and gentlemen, can you hear me? I've been haunted all the, this week by some lines, I think, of Winston Auden, which are, private faces in public places are wiser and nicer than public faces in private places. This really is the problem, and this is what we've been talking about all the week, isn't it? I must just make a personal statement, because I'm not very good at generalizations and theories, and some of the problems which have um, occupied many of my colleagues on the platform and also in this audience of race, of political, of exile, and other tragedies have not affected me. On the other hand, I've had my share of internal, interior, moral, and spiritual problems and have always tried to understand them. I was brought up in a sheltered Edwardian home with strong literary and musical traditions, and I never remember having any except one sort of aim or one unifying aim, which was to write a series of wonderful books and marry a marvelous man and have dozens of marvelous children. And I wasn't able to really to carry out all of that simple, optimistic, ambitious program. But I did devote my whole youth and chi uh, childhood and youth to, to reading and writing. I was, uh, my models were the great Victorian writers. And um, it seemed to me, uh, the ideal way to live, to live like George Eliot or Mrs. Gaskell or Jane Austen, that is to write these books and remain extremely private, in fact, as they did, anonymous, because as you remember, all women writers in those days wrote under these extraordinary semi-abstract, semi-masculine Nom de plume, and I thought how wonderful that would be to, to write like that, how liberating, and I, I rather wish I could still do that, and I recommend it to all of us. I think perhaps we could all profit by doing that. Anyway, this was not possible to me, and I wrote Dusty Answer when I was very young, and um, it became a bestseller. Oh, I ought to start by saying that just about that, that time that I was um, wishing to write this book, I, it occurred to me that it might be possible for me to gain a little more experience by traveling or leaving home. And my mother, who was a New Englander, said to me that the Bronte sisters had never had to leave home. Emily Bronte had never left home, and she didn't see why I should. And there didn't seem any answer to that. Have I wrote it, and it became a bestseller, and this was 
to me, terrifying. I, I suddenly saw this complete dichotomy, and I've never been able to um, really knit it up between what was going on inside me and what I wanted to look at and my, uh, my public <coughs> image. I can remember always feeling, uh, every review I read, that's not what I meant at all, that isn't it at all, and this has gone on ever since. And I also remember my amazement when publishers, American and English, urged me to go on lecture tours or appear, I know it was not television in those days, uh, on, in radio, but they said this was part of a writer's equipment. And I couldn't understand this because I thought the only raison d'etre of a writer was to write, to go on writing as truthfully as possible. I was reading yesterday some, something that Henry James said, which seems very apposite, so I'll quote it. It is in the waste of time, of passion, of curiosity, of contact, that true initiation begins. Well, I agree with that. I think he meant that the writer what's called the creative writer, I hate to use that word, but it's, an, it's a useful one. He meant uh, idling about and absorbing without having to try to give out. He meant everything that Keats, John Keats meant by the poet's negative capability. On the other hand, I remember he also said in the destructive element, immerse. He meant many things by this, or they could be interpreted in many ways, but it occurs to me it might be taken to refer to speaking on platforms and undertaking lecture tours. The trouble is that these are not only taxing and wearing, but they're apt to induce the notion that one's opinions are of any particular importance. I think great writers often hold very foolish opinions. Great creative writers often hold very foolish opinions. And another thing is that one begins to succumb to the temptation, or it's rather hard to resist the temptation, of looking at one's public image or of trying to construct one. In fact, beginning to look at a public face in a public place. Now, I want to end by a suggestion. I think a good theme, one of the themes, not the overall theme for a future Congress, would be the writer as a silent spirit. I was remembering yesterday something that one of your great poets said, Marianne Moore, one should above all learn to be silent, to listen, to make possible promptings from on high. I would say on high means the same as within. And uh, I think you'll find that this has been the experience of all, great, all the great writers, all great poets, Blake included, and I would suggest, for pra uh, practical purposes, that there should be 
for, in this uh, Congress, I envisage so a lot of small rooms with table ronde, round tables in them, and round each should say perhaps a dozen writers should sit in absolute silence for about <laughs> 20 minutes or half an hour. And at the end of this time, each of these writers should be allowed to speak one sentence. <laughs> and I think we'd find that some tremendously good ideas, or perhaps one good idea, would come out of that. Thank you very much. Manifesto of, we are all very grateful for this manifesto of quietism. And I must say, as chairman, I'm going to be as quiet as possible. N next, may I call upon Dr. Choi of Korea. Thank you, chairman. Uh, I think I'm not ready to speak uh, generally about today's subject. So I would like to talk about uh, Korean writers, of course, concerning uh, today's subject. Uh, I think a Korean writer uh, is a spokesman of common people. So Korean literature has not been written for the entertainment of the ruling classes, not for the polit political propaganda of ruling groups or political parties, but for the pleasure of the common people. Uh, Korean literature is the literature of the common people who have been living in poverty and oppression. One example of this is that during the Japanese rule from 1910 to 1945, Korean people were subjected to severe political oppression and lived under conditions of dire economic hardship. Moreover, at the end of the Japanese rule, our freedom of expression was ruthlessly suppressed, but also we are forbidden by the Japanese rulers the use of our mother tongue. Even they forced us to speak and write only in the Japanese language. Nevertheless, Korean writers kept on writing poems and stories in our language. It's only because they knew their people were very anxious to express what they thought and what they felt in their own language. Of course, their re reward for doing so when discovered was 
arrest and the jail. Even before the Japanese period, their situation was almost same. For the royal family and aristocrat noblemen, so-called, we say, yangban, who were the traditional ruling classes of old Korea, Chinese scholarship was the only learning, and the Chinese literature the only literature. Accordingly, they loved to express their thoughts and feelings in Chinese. And they held Chinese literature in great esteem while despising Korea's vernacular literature. Korean vernacular literature naturally grew and developed among the common people. Even those aristocrats, noblemen, who wrote Korean literature only did so when they were reduced actually or mentally to the status of common people. For example, Yun Sondo, a great poet of 17th century, wrote masterpieces of Sijo, Korean vernacular poetry, which is equivalent uh, to Japanese waka, waka. But only he wrote them when he was living a hermit life after falling from the favor of the royal court. Consequently, I would like to say again, the Korean writer is a spokesman of the common people, rather a friend of them. Because the Korean writer is not only living among the people, but also thinking and feeling with them. Therefore, what he wrote is what they thought and what they felt. Of course, he is not writing it consciously, but unconsciously, rather instinctively. Korea, uh, Korean writer's public commitment is generally unconscious one. I think the conscious commitment is rather dangerous to make us lose the independence as a creative artist. Uh, finally, I would like to say the traditional attitude of the Korean writer is to live, think, and feel with the common people and to write what they think and feel. But to my regret, our young writers have a tendency to depart from the tra uh, traditional attitude. By the way, the crisis which generally the writers face today is that the literature is separating from the people. That means writer is losing his readers. Uh, I think 
one of the best ways to dissolve the crisis and to become intimate with the people is to live, think, and feel with them and write what they think and feel. I believe this is the safe way for the writer to commit himself publicly without losing the independence as a creative writer. Thank you. I thank Dr. Choi for his most interesting contribution on the predicaments of the younger writers and the tradition of Korean literature. And now may I interrupt on a small point of um, interest to some. There will be a broadcast for which some of our colleagues are called. And I'm asked in particular to invite uh, Mr. Nascimento of Brazil, Mr. Ngugi of Kenya, Mr. Kane or Kana of Senegal, Madame Ocampo of Argentina, and Mr. Abruqua of Ghana to go to the second floor lounge at 12.45 to 1.45 to take part in the broadcast. Other individuals have already been individually informed. And further, I'm asked if Mr. Lovinescu of Romania is in the hall. If so, would he get in touch with me? And maintenant, j'ai l'honneur de donner la parole à Monsieur Pablo Neruda. Très chers amis, comme toujours, dans ma vie, je viens ici pas préparé. Je n'ai pas pris de notes. J'avais lu dans ce long voyage de mon pays jusqu'ici les petits programmes, mais j'ai essayé de les comprendre. Et dans notre discussion, qui commence par être si intéressante et touchante. J'ai eu une petite surprise. Je croyais que nous étions, je rêvais peut-être, que nous étions dans la fin, dans l'agonie de la guerre froide, du Cold War. Cette guerre qui a été tellement dure et terrible pour les écrivains d'un côté et de l'autre. Mais il y a ici des, des collègues illustres qui se sont plus à m'éveiller de mon rêve. Il paraît que pour quelques-uns, la guerre froide doit continuer. Moi, je dirais seulement une seule chose sur cette guerre froide des écrivains. J'ai visité tous les pays socialistes que les écrivains capitalistes appellent totalitaires. 
J'étais partout. J'ai parlé avec tout le monde, comme j'ai parlé avec les écrivains de tous les pays capitalistes. J'ai trouvé dans les pays socialistes des écrivains heureux et des écrivains malheureux. J'ai trouvé dans les pays capitalistes des écrivains heureux et des écrivains malheureux. Si je suis sincère, sans ajouter rien à la guerre froide, puisque je ne pouvais pas le faire, j'ai trouvé beaucoup plus d'écrivains malheureux dans la société capitaliste. Eh bien, pour moi, je veux que tous les écrivains, d'un côté et d'un autre, d'une croyance ou d'une autre, très propagandiste ou très pur, très grand ou très petit, je veux que tous les écrivains et que le monde de la culture et ses protagonistes soient vraiment heureux, libres et créateurs. Chers amis, mon pays a été le Chili, je suis chilien, c'est le pays le plus lointain, a été inventé par un poète dans le XVIe siècle. Un poète est arrivé entre les sanglants chevaliers qui venaient faire la conquête au nom de l'Espagne impériale. Il s'appelait Ercilia. C'était cet homme qui a écrit les plus longs et les plus merveilleux poèmes épiques, la Raucana. C'était un homme de la Renaissance qui est venu pour célébrer, commander par les grandes forces de l'Espagne impériale. Ce soldat, poète, a vu la tragique destinée qu'on réservait aux Indiens et il a vu l'effort héroïque de la race indienne, de la race araucanienne pour défendre sa terre, les privilèges de continuer à vivre, de continuer ce qu'ils avaient ou ils croyaient comme religion ou comme, ou comme raison. Il a écrit ces merveilleux poèmes où le nom de mon pays a commencé à exister. C'est-à-dire que mon pays est né d'un poème et d'une conception nouvelle dans le monde de la conquête espagnole, d'un héros qui venait de loin pour célébrer les héros de sa patrie et qui a célébré la prouesse et l'esprit fier des gens qui allaient être ensevelis et dévorés par la conquête. Depuis lors, l'esprit des écrivains de ces petits pays a été toujours imbué de cette force combative et de cet esprit d'indépendance qui ne sont pas opposés, qui forment une seule matière. Et 
En revenant dans, euh, aux directions du programme et du sujet, c'est possible que dans le, si dans les poèmes de Whitman ou de Rimbaud, si on ne pense pas à la participation politique ou civile de, et nous pourrions penser que cette euh, poésie sans politique, sans euh, position civile, continue la même éclatante grande. Mais est-ce que l'homme, l'homme Quidman, l'homme Rimbaud, nous ne pouvons pas les concevoir sans les poids de son époque et sans cette tendance civile et politique. Il se peut qu'un poème pur de l'inventeur de la poésie impure, Rimbaud, n'est pas une goutte de contenu philosophique, politique, civil. Mais c'est que tout l'être de Rimbaud était imprégné de son désaccord tragique avec la société de son époque et toute la personnalité de Joel Whitman a été absolument transpercée par l'époque tragique et son sentiment d'adhésion à la cause de Lincoln. Il peut écrire sur la locomotive, il peut écrire sur les, sur les lilas en fleurs, mais c'est le même Whitman qui a été profondément ému par cette commotion. Il est l'homme d'une grande commotion politique et sociale, et sans cela, il ne pourrait pas exister, ni Rimbaud pourrait avoir existé sans ce conflit énorme qu'il a eu entre lui-même et la société capitaliste dans une époque tragique. Pour moi-même, et pardonnez-moi d'être autobiographique, dans la dernière minute, on, on se connaît le plus soi-même, que les autres, je ne suis pas un critique, je ne suis pas un essayiste pour planifier ma, ma réponse ou ma contribution à cette discussion. Pour moi-même, je suis un poète profondément engagé. J'ai parcouru tous les villages, toutes les mines, tous les euh, petits villages des paysans de mon vaste pays qui vient de presque l'équateur jusqu'au pôle du sud. C'est une longue tâche. On m'a écouté partout. C'est le peuple qui m'a écouté. Ils avaient la curiosité de me connaître. Ils me demandaient quelque chose. Ils me demandaient sans me le dire, avec ses yeux et avec ses pieds nus. Ils m'ont demandé cela dans tous les peuples de l'Amérique latine de parler au nom de ceux qui ne peuvent pas parler, d'écrire au nom de ceux qui ne peuvent pas écrire. J'ai accompli cette mission avec humilité et avec orgueil. J'ai été écouté par des gens analphabètes. J'ai apporté ma poésie avec douleur, avec angoisse, mais avec le profond espoir de savoir 
que la condición de pueblo de América changera y que ya me estoy oposado a la injusticia y a la guerra como maintenant una vez de plus j'étais consciente de apporter a mi pueblo cette quantité d'espoir et de lutte dont il a besoin et si l'écrivain ne la porte pas quand on lui demande même par des gens qui ne peuvent pas arriver à le dire près de lui si l'écrivain ne se fait pas les porte-parole de la condition humaine autour de lui qu'est-ce qu'il peut faire est-ce qu'il ne se sentira pas désolé, solitaire. Je me suis senti beaucoup de fois plein de doutes, peut-être, et plein de désespoir. J'ai souffert. Et j'ai été heureux. Mais je vous dis que ce sentiment de solitude, je n'ai le plus. Je sais que mon peuple, d'une façon ou de l'autre, Connais la confiance en moi. Je ne peux pas décevoir cette confiance. Je suis le poète, alors, pleinement engagé dans la sécurité aussi que l'avenir de l'humanité sera un avenir de liberté, de création, de dignité de liberté, de justice. Autrement, je ne le serai pas. Si j'accepte ces qualificatifs de propagandiste pour moi, pour d'autres poètes, je l'accepterai aussi avec orgueil, parce que propagandiste était Walt Whitman, et propagandiste était Victor Hugo. Et pourquoi ne pas propager ce que nous voulons, ce que nous croyons être le vrai idéal de justice. Est-ce qu'on peut être vraiment mieux et que ça c'est la position sublime et commode, et commode aussi. J'ai connu un poète que j'aimais comme je n'aimais aucun autre poète. Il était très fier. Il était content de ne pas s'engager. J'adorais ce poète. Il s'appelait Federico Garcia Lorca. Il était mon ami. Chaque jour, nous nous lisions des poèmes. Et dans la première chose d'une guerre cruelle, c'est qu'ils ont lancé les drapeaux pour combattre et ce qu'on appelait à ce moment-là, dans la guerre d'Espagne, le totalitarisme socialiste qui menaçait, disait-il, l'Espagne, l'ont sacrifié. Et cette blessure, je l'ai encore, cette blessure dans ma littérature, dans ma poésie, dans ma conscience aussi, parce que j'ai dit... Il n'était pas engagé, mais moi, je le serai. Je lutterai un peu pour que les choses ne se répètent pas.
je, je remercie M. Neruda de sa, son expression franche, de ses sentiments sur cette question de l'engagement du poète. Et j'ai envie de, de M. Neruda, de son rapport avec son peuple, et j'ai envie aussi de ce bon mot que son pays, le Chile, est né d'un poème. Mais tout de même, il y a une petite question de sémantique. Il a parlé, euh, que, il a dit que seulement les capitalistes euh, parlent de, de certains régimes comme totalitaires. Euh, Michel Siloni et moi, nous ne sommes pas capitalistes, je crois, mais tout de même, euh, nous, nous servions de, de ce mot totalitaire pour des régimes qui nous semblent vraiment totalitaires. Uh, I didn't want to say anything controversial because I'm only the chairman here. Mais But je m'excuse tout de suite et j'ajoute que les membres d'un capitaliste et vous deux euh, euh, avez employé ce mot. Je ne veux pas vous mêler dans, dans le monde capitaliste, mais ça c'est courant d'entendre. De, si vous l'employez, c'est naturellement d'une façon indépendante. Alors, Uh, may I now ask Mr. Daniel Bell, to, Mr. Daniel Bell of the United States uh, Center. I'd like to speak about the writer as a man who deals with imagination and with sensibility, and thus speak primarily of the literary person, not perhaps of the technical intelligentsia. And what I may say perhaps may wound his vanity, and this is a great risk. Chekhov once said that an author's vanity is vindictive, implacable, and incapable of forgiveness. In that sense, I may have to risk that type of encounter. I'd like to point out perhaps, since I speak not as a man of imagination or a novelist, but primarily as a sociologist, that what one calls a writer today is something very distinct as a new kind of person in the social scene. In the history of human emotions, there have always been those who sought to symbolize feelings. And traditionally in the past, this has been a priest who tried to do this through ritual, and the bard who tried to do this through myth and legend taking certain dramatic and recurrent themes of tragedy and such to try to provoke the symbolism. The writer is a modern figure emerges for two reasons. First, because of the emphasis on experience and immediacy as against revelation, authority, tradition, and even reason. And secondly, because of the emphasis on the self, on the I, as a touchstone of truth not the group. But the writer, however, is not a single person. He is an imago for others in his imagination and in his art and in his personal lifestyle. And he also lives in social milieus. Most writers are not solitary individuals. They live in circles, cliques, and various other forms of this kind of social gatherings. 
Thus, there's always a tension between the self and the group and the society. And to this extent, the writers engage in a social role, not in the sense of the role as play acting, but in the role simply of the kinds of obligations he has necessarily to himself as well as to others. In the sense of playing a social role, a writer is subject to many lures, because the I, the self, is a powerful self-centered magnet. He's quite often seduced by the idea of power and becomes an ideologist or an apologist, and sometimes even seduced by moralizing and becomes self-righteous. Much of this, and the best of it even, is rationalized, it seems to me, by the idea of commitment. And to some extent, I think commitment becomes a mystique. It's curious, and perhaps one can apply here some of the notions of phenomenological philosophy. The word is always used abstractly, committed, commitment, and lacks a very simple intentionality. Committed to what? Committed of what? The sense of relatedness very rarely appears, except the word striking often simply committed, and therefore at worst becoming a posture or becoming what William James once said, the ascension of the faith ladder, which cannot distinguish possibilities from probabilities and converts the latter into certainties. It leads, I suppose, to the definition of the ideological writer, the man who runs down the street shouting, I've got an answer, who's got a question? <laughs> there is at least in advanced industrial societies, and I shall simply limit myself within that area that I know best, Within advanced industrial societies, there is, it seems to me, a very important problem of the writer today. It's his relationship to the politicians and to power, and his relationship to the technical intelligentsia. Because more and more the area with which he's concerned becomes technical, and the problems he confronts becomes more complex. In relationship to the politician, there's always a temptation to become the handmaiden, which subverts the eye in this respect. And the problem here, I may say parenthetically, particularly in relationship to politics, is not in any country whether the writer is happy or unhappy, because writers may be happy or unhappy for many reasons. The ultimate political question is whether a writer is purged or unpurged, and whether he's free or not free, and whether he's in prison or not in prison. <laughs> the second question about the technical intelligence is even more complex because more and more the kinds of questions he normally would confront, questions about the quality of life, now become tied up with questions primarily of detail which he's often ill-equipped to deal with. Problems, for example, of city planning and the layout of cities, the economics of cities, and questions of this sort normally are beyond his ken, and yet he will often talk about this without having the fundamental awareness of the ranges of his own limitations. But these are elements of the hubris, perhaps, of all of us in these terms. What I'd like to suggest, it seems to me, is something simpler in a way. That in a world which becomes increasingly complex and bureaucratized, and where power becomes, in a sense, much more diffused in these terms, if there is a role for the writer, it is essentially to emphasize the notion of doubt, perhaps, and less of commitment. I would take the Kant word alienation and say, that in many cases, alienation is a positive virtue, because alienation is a distancing of oneself from an event 
and therefore it creates a self-consciousness. And by creating a self-consciousness, you can emphasize that the claims of doubt become prior to the claims of faith. Ms. Lehman was talking of Keats and negative capability. And you may remember Keats in his famous description of Shakespeare said that he had the power of remaining in uncertainty without any irritable reaching after faith or reason. And Dante once said too that doubting pleases me no less than knowing. I submit that if there is a point of the writer as a public figure, it is to remain perhaps in a state of doubt. The international president suggests that I should now call upon persons who wish to intervene from the floor. I have a number of names here on the list. Who would like to start? I see Mr. Runnett raise his hand. Mr. Runnett of the Center for Writers in Exile. And may I remind those who intervene from the floor that under the procedural rules I have here, they have a, a time limit of five minutes. And I see as second to Monsieur Kutsukeras of Greece, and third, Madame Damin, um, and fourth, Mr. Chokor. Thank you. Well, well, uh, we'll leave the others till over. First of all, Mr. Ranit. Alex Ranit of Estonia. The writer as public figure has been made yesterday outspokenly responsible for creating admirably original, but at the same time irresponsible slogans. This irresponsibility and its dangers was decisively and rightly rejected by Mr. Losky. I would like to point out an additional aspect of writer's activity as a public figure, namely as a spokesman expressing political opinion. Many writers of the 20th century have shown a remarkable resistance to their sinister political forces. But many of them have, at the same time, while completely rejecting one system of totalitarianism, should I say of uh, Mr. Hitler, have fully accepted the other, uh, have fully accepted the other uh, system of extreme dictatorship, should I say of uh, Mr. Stalin. Hating one gangster, the other has been venerated. There were very few among us who, like Ignazio Silone, had the ethical earnestness and civil courage to reject both dictatorships, or for that matter, any kind of dictatorship. But in general, the writer, as a public figure, has betrayed the public. One of the heroes of my own youth, humanitarian and idealist Romain Roland, while fighting against the Nazis, has ended his life as glorifier of Stalin. And the other hero of my youth, the individualist and impressionist romantic Knut Hampson, 
fighting against the communists has ended his life as glorifier of Nazi Weltanschauung. The names have changed today in some respect, but the situation remains the same. Speaking at this moment, not as a writer, but as a reader, and thus representing the public, I am asking, should not the writer, even a great one, when he is condemning one form of the evil, but is standing strongly for the other form of evil, be simply overlooked as a public figure. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you. And, uh, and now, may I, now may I call on Mr. Kutsokeras of the Greek Center. Je donne la parole à Mr. Kutsokeras de la Grèce. Monsieur Chervant, mes chers collègues, sous ma double carte d'identité, comme poète et d'ailleurs comme un homme politique, je tâcherai de dire quelques mots sur le sujet d'aujourd'hui. Mais je crois qu'il faut l'envisager, le thème l'écrivain comme personne publique, par rapport au thème général du Congrès, l'écrivain comme esprit indépendant. Alors, je dirais quelques, quelques mots sur euh, l'écrivain par rapport à son milieu social. Car euh, je crois que l'écrivain d'aujourd'hui, plus que jamais, est incarné par l'étatisme de son pays et l'étatisme mondial. D'ailleurs, l'histoire de la littérature nous enseigne que la littérature est née dans une société euh, que la mythologie, le folklore et le chanson populaire sont nés dans une société dominée par l'idée de Dieu. En passant de littérature orale à la littérature écrite, la littérature grecque s'adresser à l'homme, mais en même temps aux citoyens. Comme vous savez, cher Chairman, vous que vous êtes analyste, n'est-ce pas Protagoras, il disait à cette époque-là, et aussi d'autres philosophes, que l'homme est la mesure de toutes les choses. Plus tard, la littérature byzantine porte l'emblème du christianisme et en même temps de la tradition de la littérature grecque. Entre-temps, Rome 
nous a donné sa littérature nationale qui porte aussi l'emblème de la Respublica Romana. Si nous allons plus tard aux chansons des gestes, les chansons des gestes représentent l'esprit de l'aventure et les fanatismes de cette époque. Enfin, pour étant donné votre clepsydre, n'est-ce pas Et pour ça que je suis bref, je vous rappelle que à l'époque du laisser-faire, laisser-passer, on a assez parlé pour l'art pour l'art, pour passer après à notre siècle, n'est-ce pas Où prédomine le, solidari le solidarisme, soit comme un droit naturel, ou soit comme, comme un contrat quasi comme un quasi-contrat, comme disait la doctrine de Léon Bourgeois, à cette époque-là, c'est tout à fait l'emblème du milieu social qui influence le créateur de l'œuvre littéraire. J'ai fait mention de tout cela pour conclure que la littérature ne perd pas, au contraire, elle gagne quand elle est le fruit du, du social, du climat social, et que les poètes, par la nature des choses, est une, il est une personne publique et il ne perd pas lui aussi quand il vit la vie politique et sociale de son époque. Je me demande si, par exemple, Eusile pourrait écrire les Perses s'il n'avait pas pris part à la bataille de Marathon et de, et de Salamine. Et comme vous savez, cette pièce la tragédie des Perses, n'est-ce pas, est débordée de l'humanisme. Je me demande aussi si Euripide ou Sophocle, qui nous, a, nous ont donné la pleine idée de l'homme et de l'humanisme, on pourrait nous donner ces tragédies s'ils ne se mêlaient pas à la vie commune et politique de cette époque-là. Pour Dante Alighieri aussi, n'est-ce pas? Il nous donnerait la divine comédie. Permettez-moi si... de vous rappeler, chers collègues, que l'eau a déjà coulé dans ma clepsydra. Oui, oui, Serman, euh, mais il ne faut pas oublier que j'ai une double, une double carte d'identité. Poète, d'une part, et d'autre part, par homme politique. Alors, laissez-moi quelques minutes encore, et je finirai, n'est-ce pas Alors, dans des Alighieri aussi, il était un politique, et pour ça, il a écrit la comédie. Hugo, Lamartine, on a écrit des œuvres pleines d'humanisme, car 
ils s'étaient mêlés à la vie politique. Et pour finir, n'est-ce pas, et pour venir à nos jours, étant donné que vous faites euh, appel à la clepsydre, je voudrais vous dire qu'aujourd'hui, que l'écrivain est entouré de l'étatisme national et de l'étatisme mondial, il faut prendre part à la vie commune, il faut lutter pour les biens et les bons de l'humanité. Il faut créer Urbi et Torbi pour la paix mondiale. Parce que sans la paix, n'est-ce pas, est-ce possible qu'il reste la culture et que le poète peut chanter Alors, pour finir, en conclusion, je crois que l'œuvre littéraire et l'écrivain ne perd rien au contraire gagne quand ils sont influencés par les milliers sociaux. Suffit qu que leur guide et la sensibilité qui les mène au lyrisme social, car la sensibilité, l'humanisme et le lyrisme social et les triptyques de la littérature, et permettez-moi de vous dire que c'est aussi le credo, le credo d'un poète et d'un homme politique qui a la qualité du député d'Athènes. Je vous remercie, M. Kotokera. Je voudrais rappeler aux personnes de la floor que, en justice à tous nos collègues, je dois essayer de les garder dans la règle de 5 minutes. Maintenant, je vais demander à Mme Domine de l'Allemagne de parler de la floor et je vais revenir au panel avec uh, Dr. Ting. I have been asked last time to, am I clear now? I have been asked last time to speak more slowly and I am bringing a message at the end of, of what I'm going to say and therefore I will try to keep within five minutes but maybe even six. And I would start to say that I am possibly the only what you called the so-called creative writer Rosamund Lehmann who has been in exile during the Hitler time and is a Western German citizen now. And therefore I want to say a few things that no other German writer can tell you. But first I would like to narrow the gap between the committed and the non-committed writer because I think we all of us have more or less the same task. And I should like to quote a line that's been quoted by an Eastern German delegate of Brecht Brecht. That is, we, um, what a time we, we have to live in when to speak of trees 
is almost a crime. And I should like to quote against it a line from a present-day German poet, Günther Eich. And he said, who should like to live without the consolation of trees? And I should like to quote Gabriela Mistral, who has done so much for Chile and whose poems are not political. And she used to consider herself an um, consular, ambassador of whatever she was in this country, um, with the trees and not with human beings. And still she undersigned and she promoted every initiative that was good and helpful against fascism and was good and helpful for Latin America and for Chile. And this was what I wanted to start saying. And now I'm not going to read, but I'm going to read one thing which is from Confucius about one of the main tasks of every writer, be he committed or not. Oh yes, I would still like to say something to the first thing. I would like to quote an, one of your beat writers, and he said, who shall, wants to wage a war on roses shall have it. And now I want to like to quote Confucius. And he says, when the language is not all right, then whatever is said is not what is intended to say. If that which is said is not what is intended to say, no work can be achieved. If the works are not achieved, moral and art cannot prosper. If moral and art cannot prosper, right cannot prosper. If right is not right, the nation does not know where to put hand and foot. And therefore, one should not allow any arbitrariness in words. And that is the main thing that matters. And I think all of us, regardless whether we are committed in the narrow sense of the word or whether we are just like Walt Mitman, children of our times, have to look in our work for a hygiene of the language. And we have to call a spade a spade. And we have to call a table a table and not a board with five with four legs. And um, then I wanted to say a person is at the same time a person. You can be committed as a person and just write uh, what you call pure poetry. And I feel every poet and every writer should try to appoint himself a controller of the public language of his country. And we in Germany had, at the time of Hitler, um, the uh, alteration of German language and the misnaming of things. And politicians in every country, Carlos Fuentes, Fuentes spoke of Mexico, and he said that things were being misnamed. And when things are being misnamed, reality is made unclear, and nobody can make a decision. And therefore, I think the writer, committed or not in his work, should be committed to kind of um, making himself the custodian of a true naming of reality. 
And I should like to say that um, the chairman, as chairman of the German delegation, with whom I disagree on many things, has, is the co-editor of a Dictionnaire of the Wörterbuch des Unmenschen, a dictionary of the um, how would you say a dictionary of the language of the anti-man or of the unhuman. And um, but we have this language going on all the time. And are you confining it within the, the no, agreed time? Please. I'm, okay. hmm? I think I think we the writer should no, yes. I have still something very important to say, can I? Well, within half a minute, please. This is very difficult. I want to say something. I feel you have been speaking about uh, writers being in jail. I feel we should take a great, um, we should rather prevent writers getting into jail, and we can do this. We can only, as to the totality, so-called totalitarian countries, we can send messages. And the so-called free countries, we can keep them free. And I would make the concrete proposal that we should watch over the legislation in as far as the legislation menaces to introduce censorship in peacetime. And I would like to call the attention of this audience on the panel code reformation in Germany. Our panel code, if, if our Minister of Justice should have his way, will lead half of our journalists into jail because the transmission of news is heavily penalized if there is a sort of, um, if there is the slightest danger that it should harm what anybody may discretionally consider um, a danger to the state. And then we have right now the same thing with the German emergency laws. Thank you, thank you. Uh, may I now call on Dr. Cheng of Taiwan. Chairman, uh, before going to the discussion, I should uh, like to correct a little mistake in the denomination of the center in which I belong. As indicated in the face car here, I come from China, not from Taiwan. Taiwan, only a province of China. So I think our proper official term of our center is Chinese Center PN in Taiwan. And uh, I think the secretary has already promised me to make the correction after in during the recession. But this uh, momentarily sentiment sentimental expression of myself gave me some inspiration in entering into the discussion of the problem we are all interested. Uh, this is, uh, it is, inspires me to think that there, is a, there exists a close relationship between an uh, individual, a writer as an individual, and 
a community in which he belongs. Individual is an integral part of the public. Any expression he made will influence the public. And the public, any reaction coming from the public, will eventually correct or encourage his formulation of thought in further making further expression. So I think a writer is bound to become a public figure when his writing exercises a great influence over the public. As to the question of whether the committed writer's adoption of a public personnel seduces him into the abandonment of his independence as a creative artist. The correct answer is that it all depends upon how strong is his conviction of the result of his own thinking and how determined is his effort in putting his ideas into practice. So the question put before us is not what writer should not do, it is rather what writer should do when he becomes a public, public figure. My answer to that is when writer becomes a public, uh, becomes a public figure, he is in a position to put his idea into practice and will have ample opportunity to develop his creative impulse most independently. Uh, China has a uh, history of culture for more than, uh, I think, 4,000 years. In the history of China, we have abandoned an example to illustrate this uh, hypothesis of mine. Our great teacher, Confucius, was a great philosopher and a great writer. His writing, even in those primitive stages of communications, spread wildfire far and wide. So he has attracted a big crowd of 3,000 scholars from the vast area of China around him as his disciples. Confucius had no intention to become a perfect figure, but his writing exercise such a great influence over the public that automatically he becomes a public figure without his own knowledge. With such a reaction from the public, Confucius was assured, sure assured of the fact that his idea will be realized. And his conviction of result of, of his own thinking is thus strengthened when no one would uh, uh, make the presumption that Confucius as a public figure will be seduced into the abandonment of his independence as a cre creative artist. Permit me to make uh, a prominent member of my own family, excuse me to go into personal thing, but it's a great <coughs> writer. Uh, 
The man in my mind is General Zheng Guofan. Zheng Guofan. Zheng Guofan was a commanding general who succeeded in suppressing the Taiping Rebellion in Qin Dynasty. He was a writer, a philosopher who could apply his philosophical ideas into practical military operation and thus became an indispensable public figure without his own initiative. His becoming a public figure assured him that his philosophical ideas can weather the hard test. And he, with, his, with this assurance, nobody could seduce him into the abandon of his independence as a creative artist. Now, ladies and gentlemen, I admit that the creative impulse is the main power behind great writing. The literary garden without creative impulse would be a barren garden. And yet, today, we find our impulse either contested or suppressed by other forces. Those a professed scientist, scientist want to computerize human mind. Those who profess a certain political ideology want to remake human mind. While the uh, proponents in the first category were in time draw their conclusion affirmative or negative in their experience, those in the latter category, however, present far greater an immediate danger to all of us who are genuinely concerned with the search of the meaning of life. We do not have to go far to look for evidence of the danger. Andrei Sinyavsky and Yali Daniel are now languishing in prison for having committed the crime of refusing to tow a political line across the border from the homeland of the gallant Russian writers on mainland China. An even more cruel campaign is in full swing, aiming at the destruction by political force of the creative impulse of those who treasure their pens and even more so their mind. The Chinese communists have made the literary writings one of their instruments of political control. We Chinese writers seeking to defend our independence are therefore compared to pick up the gauntlets thrown down by these vicious forces. Intellectual honesty cannot be ensured as long as these forces continue to exist. We have no choice except to descend from our ivory power and become warriors fighting for the right of self-expression. The purpose of our taking a stand is to safeguard man's elimination of his, of his own spirit. Mr. Chairman, I've uh, made a written report briefly on how the Chinese communists have been suppressing and destroying the creative impulse of the writers on China mainland through a series of literary purges. This report now has been placed on the desk in the lobby. 
ladies and gentlemen, if you are interested in the, knowing the present condition on China Mellon, I welcome you to pick up a copy in the lobby on the de desk over there. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. It is, a great, it is a great pleasure to be reminded of the antiquity of Chinese contributions to literature and the wonderful fact that Confucius should have had far more people than are at this Congress participating in his uh, current thinking. Now I'm going to call on our international president, Mr. Arthur Miller, to contribute his thought. At the risk of uh, sounding eclectic, I uh, am going to give you my, uh, not my opinion, but my experience with this problem of commitment. Obviously, from what has been said here, in addition to what we all have read and thought about over the past years on this subject, it is not possible to say that a writer who is committed necessarily is injuring his art, or that a writer who is uncommitted, whatever that term really means, is helping his art or hurting his art. We have examples of writers who proclaim their commitment, such as Pablo Neruda, such as Brecht, whose contribution to literature is not seriously to be questioned. On the other hand, there are writers who despise commitment, who feel it is a jail. And they have uh, have contributed enormously to literature. So that something is wrong with the question. I have lived through the last two decades in the United States and seen terrific changes taking place in the relationship of writers toward commitment. In the 30s, when the Depression struck the United States, it was common for many writers to declare that they were committed to one form or another of the socialist ideology. This was probably not a, minor, a, a majority of the writers writing, but it was a very vocal minority. Uh, one has to remember that the conception in the United States of writers, of the public toward writers, has traditionally been to ignore them. The writer as a public figure in the United States has been a rare phenomenon until recently. By public figure, I don't mean someone who gets a good deal of publicity but someone whose opinions on public matters might be of political importance. In my own view, this has really only taken place in the very recent past, the last few years. 
when Robert Lowell, for example, made a statement about the Vietnamese conflict and caused a worldwide shudder or uh, a great celebration, depending upon what point of view one had, it was remarkable in the history of this country because normally writers taking public positions were either ridiculed as people who didn't know what they were talking about or ignored. Now, I have seen in the past writers who declared their commitment in public meetings, in manifestos, in signing their names, but whose writing showed practically no sign of any spiritual commitment to anything. I've known writers who never signed any petition whatsoever, yet the content of whose work is on an objective basis to be judged as work that is committed to some concept of, of uh, human society. I think that it may be fruitless to try to equate the accomplishment of a writer with a degree of his commitment. So that it is possible, if one concedes this, it then becomes possible to respect both points of view and to concede them good faith. I myself have felt committed from time to time to one or another viewpoint. And I've written out of that commitment. It has been in the blood and bone of my writing. I don't think that my writing is better or worse because of that. It is inevitable. It could have been no other way. I don't even believe that a writer makes a choice to commit himself or not. I think there are those who are so tuned into society that they are swept by their vision of what is wrong in the world. They are swept to say something about it. They are impelled to, to uh, support or attack in their work. And this can no more be a, a uh, factor in criticism of their work than the color of their eyes. In other words, I would like to eliminate the word must from this category. There is no, there is no imperative about it. Having said that, I'll go on to seem to contradict what I've just said. I do believe that at any one moment, the reader, the audience in the theater, is most likely to be moved, compelled by what he sees, when it most powerfully impinges on his real social and personal problems. In that sense, commitment, meaning the addressing of a writer toward the immediate reality of his time, has an effect on at least the public reception to his work. It is a powerful stimulus for people. For example, when they see 
a, a play which is dealing vividly with the perplexities of their current existence. That is more important to them, and the critics generally accord it a greater importance than another play which may be beautifully done, but which has no evident connection with what anybody is really worried about on the sidewalk or in his office or in his bedroom. So there is a kind of implacable pressure on literature to address itself to what is pertinent and relevant at the moment. This kind of commitment, the writer committed to be the voice of some kind of clarity in his time, to be the, the eye that sees reality, the reality of the moment. I believe in that. I believe that that helps a writer. And to evade that reality, to deny it, hurts him. And I don't want to take too much time. I just, my, the brunt of what I wish to say is, a writer can be as stupid and as foolish as anyone else in his political viewpoints, in his predictions of the future. But it is in the nature of writing, the writing that we want to read, instead of the writing, as opposed to the writing that we are told we should read. The writing that really genuinely, when we open the page, sucks us in and makes us want to go on. It is in the nature of that writing that it be individual. We, in political life, and economic life, in public life, we are being assaulted by conventional viewpoints. People generally are saying, what they think should be said. We are all victims of politeness. We are all victims of standardized concepts. It seems to me the role of the writer is to speak from the genuine center of his soul, which is difficult. It is nearly impossible to do. And that's why it seems to me literature has any value at all, finally. It's because we need a naked, naive, genuine response to reality. And it's only in literature, it's only in the drama, that we can hope to find it. The writer who is led into himself by his commitment, the writer who is enabled to approach his inner spirit by his commitment, is helped by that commitment. The writer who is led away from himself by his commitment is hurt by it. Thank you very much. Monsieur Siloni veut reprendre la parole. Monsieur le Président, je voudrais faire une brève déclaration, surtout pour ceux du public qui n'était pas présent lors de mon intervention, mais l'était lorsque une certaine appréciation a été portée sur, sur ce que j'avais dit. Donc, j'avais parlé avec admiration, bien entendu, de, des intellectuels qui se sont opposés au nazisme, au fascisme, au colonialisme, à la guerre d'Algérie et de ceux qui s'opposent actuellement à la guerre du Vietnam. Et j'ai aussi parlé naturellement avec admiration de nos amis hongrois 
et polonais qui ont gardé leur amour de la liberté. Et j'ai mentionné avec admiration Pasternak, Sinyaski et Daniel et les autres sans, sans avoir le sentiment de retomber dans la mentalité, dans la psychologie de guerre froide. Si cela a été compris comme cela, je, je le regrette. Et je serais heureux si on prenait acte de, mon, de ma déclaration. Je me permets d'ajouter que si, sitôt qu'on prononce le mot Pasternak, on croit que c'est de la guerre froide, eh bien, celui qui croit cela, il est lui-même prisonnier de la mentalité de guerre froide. Une seconde déclaration en ce qui concerne le mot totalitaire. J'ai dit que je n'employais pas ce mot dans le sens vulgaire, injurié, qui, euh, le même sens avec lequel parfois on emploie le mot fasciste, fasciste et, et, et l'adversaire, simplement. Mais qu'ayant connu le fascisme, ayant connu et étudié le totalitarisme, j'ai employé ce mot dans la signification objective, juridique et historique qu'il qu a. Totalitaire est le régime où le pouvoir public a un droit hégémonique sur toutes les expressions et facultés de l'homme et de la vie sociale, où le pouvoir public décide ce qui est beau et ce qui est laide, ce qui est vrai et ce qui est faux, décide sur la religion, sur la philosophie, sur la science. Ça, c'est le totalitarisme, pas dans un sens injurié, mais dans un sens rigoureusement scientifique et historique. Nous avons vu, heureusement, que cette, cette, cette forme extrême de totalitarisme a subi des restrictions dans quelques-uns des, des pays des démocraties populaires et à un certain moment même en Russie pendant, pendant Khrushchev, etc. Mais et nous souhaitons naturellement que le totalitarisme se sépare du socialisme et qu'au lieu d'un socialisme totalitaire, nous puissions avoir un socialisme démocratique. Ceci, j'ajoute seulement, seulement encore un mot en ce qui concerne vraiment mon sentiment favorable à l'élargissement de nos rangs à, à, la, à, à la cooptation de, de nos confrères russes et même chinois, pourquoi pas, qui sont encore absents. Mais nous voulons ça, pas seulement pour avoir un peu plus de cotisations, évidemment. Nous, nous, avec, avec, avec les Russes, avec les Chinois et avec tous les autres, nous voulons rester une association libre qui librement discute de tout ce qui concerne la vie littéraire et la vie artistique avec franchise et sans réserve mentale et naturellement avec respect réciproque ce respect de ma part est complet envers tout le monde si M. Nerouda permet aussi envers lui Merci. I would like now to call on Mr. Daniel Bell to say a few words in, uh, or however many words he likes, in uh, de pursuing the discussion. And then I'd call on Mr. Franz Theodor Chokor to come. I would just like to respond briefly to Mr. Miller. 
since this, I am one part for the moment of this dialectic. Uh, I share most of what he's saying about the writer, but I would simply like to make this simple distinction. Perhaps it's my trade to make distinctions, and the writer doesn't. I think it's important for the person to say, yes, I feel the truth, I see it, and I must speak it. But when he talks about the naive response to reality, which is, in a sense, what a writer can do out of his feeling, one seems to me has to make this simple distinction, that a writer both expresses and the writer affirms. What he expresses may be his naive response to reality, and that may be his own truth as he sees it. But affirmation is a judgment, and there's always a distinction between, therefore, a judgment and an expression, as there is a distinction between knowledge and opinion. One can express opinion but not have knowledge. And it seems to me that most often writers tend to blur the problem of what they're doing. By thinking they're expressing, they're also affirming, but quite often they lack, it seems to me, the intermediate problem of having that degree of knowledge or having that degree of judgment or invoking that aspect of mind which is also necessary in making the kind of judgments they make. And it seems to me unless that is done, one runs the risk again of simply taking commitment and becoming mystique to justify whatever one wants to say as truth. Thank, thank you, Mr. Bell, for that contribution to clarification. Now, I've asked uh, Herr Chokor, the president of the Austrian Center, to come to the platform and sit because it's more convenient for him in view of his age. Mr. Chairman, Ladies and gentlemen, please first, I beg your pardon for my bad English, but I am an Austrian blend mixed from all peoples from the old empire and writing in German, but not so sure as to write. I want uh, to say, I am in this country for the first time, and I should like to emphasize how happy I am to be in the place where the first declaration of the rights of men were given to the world. I hope our meeting here will help the cause of freedom for humanity and peace, for which your late President Kennedy sacrificed his young and wonderful life. And now let me speak to the question from today. The, work as a, the writer as an independent spirit. His literature has three terms, pure, committed, and directed art. Here lies the battlefield of our present debate on the writer's independent spirit. Can he be an independent spirit at all if he wants to be one? We talked of a, a literature which is directed, committed, or independent. What it means by these terms? Let's look at the writer as an independent spirit, as he may be found most likely in poetry. Should we forget that the strongest impressions we have received from this literary form in our days come, came from committed poems or collections of poetry such as Paul Celan's Todesfuge, Fugue of Dead, or Bertolt Brecht's Hauspostille, Home Almanac. Compared to these do not Rilke's do in his elegies, as an example of poesy pure, seemed to lose impact, is not this work of poetry judged by, 
one of its own profoundest lines, alles vollendete fällt zum Uralten. All that is perfected falls into the age old. For my own feeling it does, but your views may be different. In the case of poesy pure, the poet is his own patron. The paper pays himself and calls his own tune. In the case of committed writing, literature engagé, there is added a factor within the writer's own mind, his conscience, which is being aroused by an outward happening. Only in the case of directed art does the writer submit to a purpose outside his own private sphere. Poesie dirigé may try to justify itself by pointing out the social or religious institutions have always influenced and directed the visual arts to a high degree and still do so without necessarily impeding their quality. This depends, of course, on the personality of the patron. If he consists of a collective body, as often is the case today, the level is usually lowered to bring the work of art within everybody's reach. We know the dangerous phrase, this will not be understood in the factories. And that things were not always so, and are not always so today. Even within the field of directed art, freedom of understanding may be granted once the collective has been made familiar with the evolution of art in the past and has learned to pass judgment on its present and future development. When adult education was first introduced, this was one of its main aims. Unfortunately, it seems to have receded lately. It is an aim that should be remembered and stressed again far more strongly. The history of art and its laws, which reach beyond ourselves, this too is a science, a social science. We shall learn from it that much of the so-called independent art is in the past was in fact committed to the highest degree. Every statement expressed in a work of art is generated by the powers prevalent in its time. Art seeks to give meaning to that which is as yet unexplained, to bring order into chaos. Man lives an empty life without a central purpose. Whenever an independent spirit turns creator, his art searches for this central purpose which lights up darkness with the light of truth. Thus, every genuine work of art bears witness to an age which is recognizable through it and would be recognized through it if all other documents were lost. In this sense, and in this sense alone, genuine art always was committed and will be committed from the Committee Divine till the first and for all time to come. Thanks. Thank you, thank you, thank you, dear colleagues. I, I thank Mr. Chokor for his most inspiring address. I remember the first Penn Congress I ever had the honor to attend in 1947. I had the pleasure of meeting Franz Theodor Chokor, and I many times met him and heard him, and I think it's a great privilege that he should be able 
too, that we should have been able to hear him again here today. Now, I'm asked to bring this session to a close. Uh, just after one comment from a member of our panel, the panel will be slightly differently constituted in the afternoon, and I shall call on colleagues who have not spoken this morning to open the session at 2 o'clock. And I also have a good number of names of colleagues from the floor who will address us during the afternoon. Now I give the word to Mr. Dundulard for a comment. Very short, Mr. Chairman. Uh, my distinguished neighbor, the British novelist Rosamund Lehman, had made a plea for the silent writer. And I do not wish what I said in this morning's session to be misunderstood, because I think the greatest of virtues must be tolerance, the only virtue that can hold together the pen club. And I, because I am such a heavily committed writer myself, I now would make a plea for the kind of writer who doesn't even fall in the two classes which our international president has distinguished, but the man or the woman who never signs a manifesto and in whose work you can't find a single trace of a commitment. Again, I would give an example, because all theory is like barren leaves, as Goethe said. During the war, when almost the whole of Holland suffered heavily, our most promising young poet, Bertus Afius, just pulled out of the city of Amsterdam, where there was famine, and he went to the north, and in a farmhouse, being well-fed and unconcerned, he wrote the most wonderful poem that we possess in modern times in the Dutch language. He has continued like this. And there are other people like this. Perhaps they aren't even members of the pen club. They are just the starry-eyed poets. And if that race should die, the poets and the mystics, we are completely lost. Perhaps they are not, as a lot of the distinguished members of the panel here and in the audience, perhaps they are not the salt of the earth, but they are the angels, invisible to us, who Robert Blake saw in the eternal sky. Thank you. Thank you. I'm giving the last word of the morning to the lady member of the panel, Ms. Rosamond Lehman. I only want to say two words. I really wanted to reply to my distinguished colleague on my right. When I said silent, I didn't say, did not say silent writer, I said silent spirit, by which I meant a listening spirit. In fact, what he has just said, uh, one who listens and receives uh, in the way he's just described. I didn't at all mean to say that it's a writer should remain silent. Thank you. Now, now, ladies and gentlemen, I declare the session at an end. I'm sorry to have had to disappoint some of those from the floor who wish to speak, but there will be opportunities for them in the afternoon, I hope. Starting at 2.